Pangas and sticks tapping, metal against wood. A chant in the distance, the hum of police fans, and the yelling of instructions. And then, a hail of bullets. This is the picture of South Africa's modern-day massacre. On the 16th of August 2012, the South African Police Service, or SAPS, opened fire on a crowd of striking mine workers at Marikana in the northwest province. Today, more than eight years on, and still families of the dead and the injured have not seen justice. In this episode of Boots on the Ground, behind SA's national headlines, we're going to tackle the slippery concept of justice and whether or not justice delayed is truly justice delivered. Boots on the Ground is a podcast dedicated to unraveling some of South Africa's biggest news stories. This podcast follows Sunday Times reporters as they investigate the stories making headlines. In today's episode, we follow Sunday Times senior reporter Graham Hoskin to Marikana as the first police officers charged with their involvement in the deaths of mine workers appear in court. For Boots on the Ground, behind SA's national headlines, I am your host, Paige Muller. Please be advised that the contents of this podcast involves recollections of a violent and disturbing mass shooting and may be disturbing to some listeners. What happened at Marikana more than eight years ago has been reported to be one of the most lethal uses of force by South African security forces against civilians since 1976. On the 16th of August 2012, 34 mine workers were killed and at least 78 more were wounded within minutes. The conflict had initially started six days earlier when mine workers began an unauthorized protest for their wages and labor conditions. But tensions between protesters, mine security forces and eventually armed police escalated quickly. To hear the events relived by those who were actually there is chilling. Mzukolo Magidiwana was 24 years old at the time and he like all other protesters, had heard rumours that the police were planning something more deadly than they had seen in previous days. But like all of the other strikers, he could not abide his current work and living situations. 
he says when when the police started um, like preparing, you know, like you know they pulled like razor wire and that kind of stuff. He said it was evident that something had changed. He says even the police officers, like their their demeanors, their faces had changed. They were not the same guys who they had been interacting with while they were on strike. Like there was a seriousness about it, you know, a, a determination about what they were doing as they prepared and they put on their vests and. And then he says, um, um, at the time there was also sort of like a thinking that maybe somebody big was coming. This is why this was happening. So the pulling of the razor wire and the seriousness of these guys, there was a, there was almost sort of like an expectation that finally maybe a minister or somebody really big is actually going to come and and address us. But as they soon discovered. A minister was not coming to address them, and they needed to leave, and they needed to leave quickly. So he says then, um, so when the, the barbed wire was kind of like being um, put around them, um, so we were at a point where he thought that maybe somebody big is coming, right? And then, as they were watching the scene unfold, that's when Mambush decided that he was going to inquire with the police about what was going on. Because, you know, they thought about what Joseph had said, that actually they're going to kill you, so Mambush was going to inquire. And then he went to the police, and when he came back, he told them that, guys, it's done. We need to leave here. And then he says, at this point, he says there were... There were people of sort of like two minds, like, like you know, some, some people like wanted to stay, some people wanted to go, but when Mambush finally came and said, it's happening, you know, then people sort of split up because they lived in different places. So it was, some of them wanted to, so he speaks for himself. He's like, for me and some of us, we lived on this particular section, so we, we started to move in one direction. Then the others moved in a different direction because they lived in a different in a different place. But he says they were watching this barbed wire, you know, being put up, and his thinking was, we don't want this to encircle us. So it was going. He says he, as an owner of, of 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 cows and stuff, he knows how, you know, what was happening. And for him, he says, for some, they knew that there's like a particular hole in the like a hole in a fence that they could use to escape, you know, and he said that's when, when they reached that pole with the group that he was traveling with, when they were about to reach that pole, he said they were hit with a water cannon. And he's, what, what he describes is that like, he had never encountered anything like that. He's like, that water had something in it. He doesn't know what it is, but it itched. He says it's like beyond tear gas. And he says the water was blue in color. So he said, when it when it touched you, you itched in such a way that you think that it, you would scratch yourself like raw. At this stage, Mzukolo was trying to escape before tensions escalated and his route was cut off. But as he approached the hole in the fence, he was shot, and then shot again, and he fell. 
So when he was lying down, he was approached by police or let's say law enforcement who were kind of going through the crowd and they asked him, he said he was 24 at the time, and he said they asked him what he was doing here, sort of like with the adults, so to speak, you know. And then he said he also wanted money. And then they asked him where his nyanga is. Um, so nyanga is a traditional healer. And he said he doesn't have one. And then they asked him how, if he doesn't have one, how is he still alive while the others are dead? And he said he didn't know, but since you are here, I'm dying. Help me. So he asked them for help. But instead of helping him, they kept firing at him. Mzokolo was shot a total of nine times. As he was bleeding out, the onslaught was halted by a man who looked like he was in charge of the unit that had opened fire. They were told to leave him as he would die on his own. So he says while he was lying on the ground, it was at some point two female officers kind of like walked up to him. And he says at this point it was now, he says the pants that he had been wearing were in tatters and he was trying to kind of like after being shot in the groin area, he was trying to kind of like, he was holding on to me. And then he says one of the ladies looked down at him and, you know, and then ran to the paramedics to say, we need to take him. And she says, he says like one of the ladies just like literally picked him up and put him in the back of the paramedic. Mzukolo's story is just one of countless similar horrifying tales. Nandipa Ganuza's husband was also gunned down on the same day, leaving her with two sons, one five years old and the other barely a week old. Nandipa says that she can't close this chapter of her life because there has been no closure and no real conclusion to what had happened to her family and her husband. Since then, how, how difficult has life been for you? Because the so she says, like, I mean, it's been really difficult for her uh, losing a husband. Like, she's still quite young, so she's still, she's still at an age where she's, she needed a husband. She's got children who needed a father. And um, she has now become a mother and a father to her children. So even things that should have been directed at the dad in terms of kids, you know, she has to be the one who takes over that, which is not an easy thing for her because she's not their dad. So she's had to kind of like find that balance to try and be everything for her children. But the concept of justice has been so elusive in this case. The details have been hidden and the process painfully stretched out, denying closure to all parties. Aisha Fundi, for instance, doesn't know much about the events surrounding her husband's death. All she really knows was that he was a protection officer for the mine, 
who was called to provide extra backup on the days leading up to the massacre. She was told that he had been hacked to death and set alight with a co-worker while on duty. Your, your husband, what, what was his position at the mine? What did he do at the mine? My husband was working from the mine as a protection officer. He was employed as a superintendent of the reaction force. Okay. And what happened to him on the day that he died? On the day when he died, apparently the strike came for that week was from the 10th of August. And when he was killed over on the 12th of August, it was on Sunday, they actually requested him to come and work because they needed manpower because of that outbreak of the wildcat strike. And then he went to the mine and aware that maybe it was also his day. Okay. So, so while my husband on that day, uh, the the breakers were a lot of them there and then they outnumbered the number of the security. I think that was the day when they were on their way to ban LUM offices in Honorable. So what I heard from one of the colleagues, the mine, uh, mine security, they decided to stop them and then that is when the guys were violent and then they they captured my husband and his colleague inside the mine vehicles and they hacked them with their pangas and then they, they burned the vehicles that were, that were driving and they burned them with the vehicles. So was your husband burned to death inside the vehicle? Yeah, my husband was burned partially. I heard that he was the one driving and his colleague, Mr. Mabelan, was burned 100% burned because he was not visible at all. My husband was being partially on the left hand side, but I don't know where they were trying to rescue them. I don't know what they did. Okay. And and yeah. and tell me, has anybody ever been arrested for your husband's murder? Nobody has ever been arrested. I don't know the killers of my husband. And at the moment we were promised by by the new company that took over by Lonely, uh, that maybe they will also try to maybe get us the legal uh, authorities so they can help us to, to, to get justice, all of us. The Marikana protest was marred by violence, nearly from the outset, and to this day, answers are few and far between. The concept of accountability for the families of everyone who died and all of the survivors, it seems laughable. Even now, as six police officers finally stand trial for their role in the murder of five mine workers just days before the official massacre, the victims left behind are unenthused by the snail pace of progress and the shocking lack of accountability. <laughs> Abasa ambe apa emsa benba ngapa basa jeli tisu za chulua le benga falang banga basa pila banga pans benfanel basa jeli bishwe wamangu wamangu twenty thirteen. So the question I asked her is that if she had the power to kind of like you know make things to her will, what would she like? She says, as far as she's concerned, she thinks like from twenty thirteen, the men who killed her husband or who killed anybody else should have been in jail, and the keys thrown away. 
So while these court cases are going on, they should have been behind bars. And it should have been as early as 2013. Has anybody been arrested for, for shooting you? And how do you, if nobody has, how do you feel that nobody's been arrested for you, what, what they did to you? Mm. Lord, but so basically he says um, he doesn't take pride in the fact that he's injured so he doesn't kind of like wear his scars as like you know some kind of something to be proud of you know um, but he says it's all good and well that the police officers are appearing in court but he wants to know how is it that who gave the order for the police to 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 kill them when they were not killing anyone while they were sitting there, if you know what I mean. So he wants to know, it's all good and well that those cops are um, in court, but he says none of those police officers who were on the ground had more power than Ramaphosa, Zuma, the police minister, or any of those people. So he wants to know why haven't Nat hasn't Natin Tepa gone to jail? Why isn't he standing trial? He wants to know why Ramaphosa is not standing trial. You know, uh, why is the president of that time, Zuma, why is he not standing trial? So it's all good and well that the police are there, but they were sent by someone. He, our president and the ANC government, they, they promised, the president himself, he promised as soon as he, he take over, he will make sure he come in Marigana and meet the families. He wanted to make sure that everyone is sorted. And to our surprise, really, this president has never came in, never stepped in Marigana. And we were, we were in the hope that President Ramaphosa is the right president because he knows exactly what happened in Marigana. So we were happy when he stepped in as a president that this is the man who's going to fix Marigana. And we believe that ANC will never be complete without them being fixed Marigana. It doesn't help for them to turn a blind eye. They know they must come and fix Marigana.
So he says um, when he reads about sort of like I don't know the new South Africa, you know, and post apartheid South Africa. For him, nothing has changed. He feels like he's still living in apartheid because he, for his life specifically, he he is not living sort of like the the South African dream or the Rainbow Nation as it's it's being you know written about. For him, he sees no difference with what the ANC is doing now to what the apartheid government did. To, so he mentions Babum uh, Langin, who just recently died, who stayed in jail for many, many years. And he says that was a legend for him. And he says when he reads about what they went through, to him it's no different that the NC government is doing to him what the apartheid government did to them. So he sees no, no difference for him specifically. When the ninth anniversary of the Marikana massacre comes and goes next year, the trial of the police officers implicated in the murders of five mine workers will be nowhere near conclusion. It's even unlikely that the case will be concluded by the time the 10th anniversary rolls around. What is more shocking is that this trial doesn't even cover the events of the 16th, the day of the massacre itself, but addresses the violence that occurred days earlier David van Veik, lead researcher at Benchmark Foundation, the foundation that has been helping Marikana miners in their fight for justice, says that a lot of his clients have really lost heart. I think that the, the people are very demoralized, um, generally. Um, you know, it's, it's a system of, of dragging out things over such a long period of time. You know, you actually wonder when a court case does happen, whether people will be able to give clear account of what happened simply because of the length of time that has passed since then. He also warns that because there has been no real ramifications, there is no deterrent to prevent a tragedy like this from happening again. As these victims and families rebuild and try to move on, the uncomfortable question of is justice delayed, just justice denied, lingers with us as a society. While commissions are called and inquiries held, do they all mean nothing if no one is really held accountable at the end of the day? For Boots on the Ground, a production of Multimedia Live in association with the Sunday Times, I have been your host, Paige Muller.